Hey folks, this is Michael, and welcome to Tatter. Before we get started, I just want to say that unless anyone says that they are speaking on behalf of a particular organization or group, you should assume that each person's views expressed on Tatter are theirs and theirs alone. I just want to make that clear to avoid misunderstanding. And now that I have effectively precluded any such misunderstanding, let's get started. Here's Tatter. According to a January article in Foreign Policy magazine, in 2014, Sweden became the first country to publicly commit to what it called a feminist foreign policy. In the words of their Ministry of Foreign Affairs, Margot Wallström, the policy entailed, quote, standing against the systematic and global subordination of women, end quote. The prime minister at the head of the government of which Wallström is a part was just confirmed by parliament to a second term. As that new term begins, the authors of that Foreign Policy magazine article urged the continued implementation and analysis of feminist foreign policy. This is indicated by their title, Sweden's Feminist Foreign Policy. Long may it reign. The authors of that article, Rachel Vogelstein and Alexandra Bro, are both at the Council on Foreign Relations. I recently had a chance to talk to them, as well as to their CFR colleague, Jamila Biggio. We discussed what feminist foreign policy means to them and their case for its implementation and proliferation. I now share that conversation in this episode, which is titled Level Up. Uh, so, first of all, welcome to Tatter. I'm delighted to have a chance to chat with you. And I want to, first of all, just make sure that my listeners have a sense of who each of you is. So imagine we're at a dinner party and you're uh, giving just a, a quick uh, sense of who you are. Uh, let's start uh, with, we'll go in alphabetical order by last name. We'll start with Jamila. Uh, if you met someone at a cocktail party, you want to give them a sense of uh, who you are and what you do, what would you say? I'm an advocate for women's rights and opportunities globally. I've worked uh, for the U.S. government at the White House and the State Department and Defense Department. I've worked for the U.N. in the field in Ethiopia and New York and um, have been committed uh, for my whole career to finding ways to make sure that women's and, women and girls can be active participants in their lives and their communities and their societies. Um, I'm also uh, a mom of, of two girls and um, active in, in looking for ways in, in our own conversations here in the United States that we can uh, make sure that um, all boys and girls and all women and men um, are, have, have the opportunity to pursue uh, the dreams that they'd like to. Thank you. What about you, Alexandra? Yeah, so I'm Alexandra. I am a research associate at the Women in Foreign Policy Program here at the Council on Foreign Relations. I am still relatively early in my career, but I have long been passionate about gender equality and women's rights and hope to continue to work on that both privately and professionally going forward. Um, I also love to travel. That's a, a great um, interest of mine. Thank you. And finally, Rachel. I 
too am an advocate for women and girls here in the U.S. and around the world and have focused my career on advancing opportunities for women. I am a lawyer by training and began my career working on women's rights domestically here in the United States at the National Women's Law Center, where I helped write legislation for Congress and amicus briefs to the Supreme Court, uh, and then spent about 15 years as an advisor to Secretary Hillary Clinton, working with her uh, on her political campaigns for leadership, as well as in her Office of Global Women's Issues at the State Department, uh, and for her at the Clinton Foundation, uh, working to advance opportunities for women around the world. And now I lead the Women and Foreign Policy Program here at the Council on Foreign Relations, which analyzes how elevating the status of women and girls advances U.S. foreign policy objectives. So I'm delighted to have a chance to talk to each of you. Uh, and I want to learn more, and I want my listeners to have a chance to learn more about feminist foreign policy, which I'll confess prior to this year, I did not know was a thing or a term of art. And I first was exposed to the term in an article or essay at foreign policy that Rachel and Alexandra co-authored about Sweden's feminist foreign policy. And my understanding, understanding from the article is Sweden uh, was the first country to publicly adopt an explicitly, quote, feminist foreign policy, end quote. And so let's start by talking about what constitutes feminist foreign policy, at least as Sweden tries to carry it out. And, and one of the things that I, I like about the article that you two wrote was you use alliteration, which I just love as a, as a sort of memory device. You refer to the three R's of feminist foreign policy, rights, representation, and resources. And Rachel, since you're listed as first author, I want to give you a chance to respond first. Can you elaborate on what those three R's actually jointly mean? Sure. So the, the theory of the case that Sweden has articulated and other countries that are looking to a feminist foreign policy as part of their foreign policy approach is that elevating the status of women and girls is not only a moral imperative, but that it's a strategic imperative and that advancing opportunities for women around the world is important because it advances broader foreign policy objectives, including prosperity, stability, and security. And this approach is supported by decades worth of research conducted by multilateral institutions, the United Nations, uh, the World Bank. Uh, certainly here at the Council on Foreign Relations, we have contributed to the body of research at, as well that shows that when the status of women in a country improves, that countries are more prosperous and secure. So consider, for example, the issue of economic growth leading international financial institutions and private sector corporations have concluded that when women participate in the economy, poverty goes down and GDP goes up. So for example, the World Economic Forum, which is not exactly considered a bastion of feminist thought, actually puts out <laughs> an annual gender gap report 
which measures the gap between men and women in a given country in terms of economic and political participation, access to education and health, as well as other factors. And this analysis shows that countries in which the gap is closest to being closed are more economically prosperous and secure. So we've, we've got pretty solid evidence that elevating the status of women advances economic prosperity. Uh, and we also have good evidence about the relationship between gender equality and stability. And indeed, it's no accident that the nations in the world where we see the most instability and conflict are also nations in which women are most likely to be denied their rights. And there are a number of studies that support the notion that including women at the peace table makes peace agreements more likely to be forged in the first instance, and in fact, about 35% more likely to last at least 15 years, which is a really important finding in an era where recidivism really characterizes a lot of the conflicts that we see. So the bottom line here is that elevating the status of women and girls is not just a moral imperative, it's a strategic imperative. Uh, and that's part of the reason why we're seeing governments like Sweden uh, and a few others start to include uh, a focus on women and girls as part of their approach to advance prosperity and stability globally. So I'm curious, uh, in part because as a social psychologist, this is just the way that I tend to think about the world. When I hear you refer to a correlation between, say, GDP growth on the one hand and gender parity on the other, I wonder to what extent gender parity really is causal in that relationship or whether, say, there's some third variable such as a form of government. So that is perhaps more democratic uh, nations or nations that adhere to democratic norms experience greater GDP growth as a result of that, and then also as a result of that tend to promote women's rights more. But it's not that uh, giving uh, or ensuring that women have greater uh, rights and representation and resources actually has an economic uh, benefit in the way you describe. Uh, is there evidence that would suggest that I'm wrong to be skeptical about that? There is evidence. And, you know, what I would point you to in particular is a piece of research that uh, we recently released here at the council, which is a report called Growing Economies Through Gender Parity. It draws on a data set and analyses conducted by the McKinsey Global Institute. And what the data show is that in both developed and developing economies alike, that if we closed gaps between men and women uh, in the labor force, that we would see considerable GDP growth. And in fact, you can go to our website, cfr.org uh, backslash WFP for the Women and Foreign Policy Program and take a look at our interactive report where you can actually sort globally, regionally, and nationally to see the percent by which GDP would grow on all three of those levels if we close gaps between men and women uh, across a range of factors. You know, the, the number that tends to be tossed around is the global number, which is that we could see 
the potential gain of gender equality and workforce participation at up to $28 trillion globally. So to put that another way, at about 26% of annual global gross domestic product if we simply close the gap between men and women by 2025. So you know, think about that at a time when you know, the global community is still recovering from an economic downturn that has roiled markets and sown political unrest around the world. We're literally leaving trillions of dollars of economic potential on the table. And you can sort by region of the world as well as country. You can compare countries. You can see the percent by which GDP would increase in the United States if we close gaps between men and women versus India versus China or Brazil or a country in West Africa. You can um, take a look at our index to, to make all of those different comparisons. And I think what you'll find is First of all, there's no country in the world in which these gaps have been closed. And second, in every nation of the world for which we have data, you would see substantial GDP gains. Now, is the number the same in every country? Certainly not. Um, in fact, I believe the greatest gain um, stands to be had in India, um, given some of the economic potential on the table and, and some of the gaps there. So it's not the same situation in every country, but what is common across countries, developed and developing alike, is that if we close these gaps, we would see economic growth. Okay. Um, I do want to direct a question to Alexandra specifically, since you were co-author on that foreign policy piece. Can you, and I know you, you characterized yourself as, uh, I don't know if you use the term more junior, but um, uh, am I right that you're a bit more uh, junior in the field of feminist foreign policy than your two colleagues? Yes, that is correct. So uh, tell me a little bit about your educational and background and relevant experience. Yeah, so I um, am originally from Sweden myself. I did my bachelor's degree at Stockholm University in political science and then have lived in the United States for the past few years. Um, I studied international relations here in Washington, D.C., uh, were you so it was, it was 2014 uh, according to your article that Sweden became the first country to publicly adopt a feminist foreign policy were you still in Sweden then or, or were you in the US at that point I had just or I moved here in I think it was in 2014 now I okay. can't exactly remember the year okay so one of the things that um came out or that you mentioned in the article was that the feminist foreign policy has been in your terms contentious uh it's been as you said one of quote sweden's most contentious governing strategies alexandra can you can, can you talk a little bit about your like unpack that for me what have been the ways in yeah. which it's been contentious so I think what's interesting about the Swedish example is that Sweden, and I think along with, it Nor with its Nordic neighbors as well, it has a long history of promoting women's rights and gender equality. And it has been long been essential issues across political parties. So pretty much all political parties emphasized, and then you can talk about the various degrees, but gender equality in their party programs, even though not all of them necessarily use the word feminist to describe their policies and objectives. Yep. Yep. Um, and as part of its, its diplomacy, Sweden has also kind of marked itself as a humanitarian superpower on the international arena. Um, and I think this kind of played into the reason for why the foreign minister Wallström adopted Sweden's feminist foreign policy in 2014. Um, 
But at the same time, it was, you can argue that it was a radical move. But as, as Rachel mentioned earlier, even though, you know, it was not only a rhetorical choice, it was also a strategic one. Wallström and the Swedish government adopted a feminist foreign policy, recognizing that advancing gender equality is not just a moral imperative, but that pursuing it abroad also would be a tool for Sweden to achieve its broader foreign policy objectives. I think an interesting point to mention, too, is that Foreign Minister Wallström, she became the Swedish foreign minister after having served as the UN Special Representative on Sexual Violence and Conflict. So she had just came from a position where she, she had directly seen the gendered impact of armed conflict on women and girls um, and the importance of women's representation in peace and security processes. And I'm, and I'm sure that that impacted her understanding of the role that gender equality plays in, in international affairs. Well, you're mentioning sexual violence in conflict zones actually provides uh, a nice segue to a question for Jamila, because I know from quickly skimming your list of publications at the CFR that you've written uh, about, and I think you you co-authored, was it a book with Rachel on sexual sexual violence and conflict? That's right. It was a discussion paper um, that we wrote that makes the case for why conflict-related sexual violence is, in fact, a security threat. So to move from the more general discussion about feminist foreign policy in which we've been engaged to thinking about some of the more specific aspects of it, can you talk about what specific things need to be done and by whom to better address the problem problem of sexual violence and conflict? I know that's a big question and I'm sure we could spend an hour on just that, but if you could give me a brief sense of one or two specific things that say if I'm a newly elected president of the U.S. and I want to adopt a more feminist foreign policy and that's a piece of it, what are one or two things that I could try to lead my country in doing? And and you want to kind of think about this from the U.S. government, for what the U.S. government could should do specifically or others as well? Uh, others as well. Yeah. So... The Nobel Peace Prize was just awarded to two leaders uh, because of their advocacy in addressing sexual violence as a national security threat. Uh, This was Nadia Murad, who is uh, a Yazidi survivor of uh, sexual slavery by ISIS, uh, perpetrated by ISIS, who has been advocating for accountability and support for survivors to reintegrate and and return uh, to their homelands. Um, And to Dennis McGuigui, who's a doctor in the Congo, uh, who has um, been advocating for support to survivors of sexual violence in the Congo uh, and addressing how sexual violence has... um, uh, broken ties in, in communities there and affected Congo's ability to recover from the conflict who's, that's just devastated the eastern regions. And what's critical about the recognition of this Nobel Peace Prize is um, understanding that sexual violence is, in fact, a threat to national and global security that it is both a human rights violation, it is a war crime, and it undermines 
government's efforts to advance security and recovery in places like Iraq, in places like the Democratic Republic of the Congo, and places like Colombia, all over the world where sexual violence has been perpetrated as a, as a tactic of war or of terror to actually advance the strategic goals of violent groups. Um, we also see sexual violence perpetrated opportunistically. Um, we see uh, in the midst of conflict where there's a breakdown in rule of law, we see both um, soldiers and armed groups and civilians perpetrating sexual violence in, in a way that um, undermines the, the safety and, and, um, and kinship ties in communities. So what's critical is for one, governments, the United Nations, international organizations to recognize that it is in their interest to respond to sexual violence, to work to prevent it. Uh, there are examples of armed groups, um, leadership making commitments that they will ensure that their, that their um, members do not perpetrate sexual violence and um, and enforce that. Uh, and, and we see that in conflicts around the world. Sexual violence doesn't occur everywhere. We see that commanders can enforce um, order and ensure that their troops don't perpetrate it. And so it's important for governments to work to prevent it by, um, by working with armed groups to make those commitments and militaries to make those commitments when we train, when the U.S. government and others train military partners to train them um, and peacekeepers to train them on uh, understanding when sexual violence occurs for peacekeepers to understand when they are mandated to protect women and girls, men and boys um, from conflict-related sexual violence, that they know what to do when they um, hear that sexual violence is, is being perpetrated. Um, at a camp nearby or in a community, a village nearby. So one is, is investing in prevention. Another area is, and, and protection, another area is investing in accountability and justice. Um, so to ensure, for example, that when peace agreements are negotiated, that, uh, that there is an amnesty given for sexual violence, that there's actually opportunity to pursue justice if survivors want it for sexual violence that may have been perpetrated during that conflict. And we've seen notable cases um, in Guatemala, for example. Um, there's been different cases that have gone before the international uh, before the ICC, before the ICTR, before different international criminal courts um, that have addressed rape as a, as a war crime, as an act of genocide, and um, have ensured support for survivors so that they have justice and can um, and have access to, to health and psychosocial services so that they can recover and become full members of their society again. And as we talked about earlier, when um, women and girls are full members of society and can participate fully, their society will be more effective at recovering from that conflict. So if you actually want to support a, a, a country to recover, it's important to ensure women are full participants, including that they've had the ability to um, recover from the violence that they themselves have experienced during the conflict.
On a related note, can one of you talk about what we know regarding the impact of having women as participants among peacekeeping forces on the uh, extent to which misconduct by those peacekeeping forces occurs? Sure. Um, so yeah, this is um, important research that's happening now to understand uh, the the benefits of having diverse peacekeeping forces, of having more women participating on those forces. We see a number of benefits. Um, one is that the forces are more effective at delivering on their um, on their mandates of gathering information, of uh, engaging with communities. Women are better able to access. Uh, communities and to understand um, from the communities where their risks are. And that may be um, risks from local uh, actors, and it may be risks from peacekeeping actors of understanding when um, counterparts and uh, the peacekeeping force um, may be perpetrating sexual exploitation and abuse, or where there may be locations where um, uh, community members are at, at risk. Um, and so under, to understand uh, when that's happening. Um, we also know that uh, in communities, um, women and girls, men and boys are more likely to report their experiences with gender-based violence um, to female members, uh, female uh, officers in uniform. Um, so when you have women in peacekeeping forces, we know that community members are more likely to come forward with their experiences of gender-based violence broadly, whether it's, um, again, perpetrated by other uh, actors, civilians, other armed, armed groups um, involved in the conflict, or by the peacekeeping forces themselves. Um, we also know that uh, when there's diversity in the force and there are other perspectives being brought to the table to um, understands the the conflict and understand kind of the peacekeeping forces' ability to um, deliver on their mandate. That that improves the overall performance of of the force um, and has ripple effects on um, on on performance of 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 individuals that are that are members of that force and ensuring that they are. Um, delivering on their mandate of protecting civilians from violence as opposed to um, themselves uh, contributing to or perpetrating sexual exploitation and abuse. One of the things that I find interesting about that is that I remember that in this this past fall semester, I had a group of students do a podcast interview with uh, Amy Tunsing, who is a National Geographic photographer. And at one point they asked Amy, whether she saw any specific difficulties that arose from being a woman. And Amy turned the question on its head, noting that, if anything, there are advantages because there's some spaces to which she can gain access as a woman mm -hmm. that a male photographer couldn't. And so I hear echoes of that in what you're saying regarding the, the level of trust that female peacekeeping, peacekeeping forces may all else equal. Uh, achieve in a local populace compared to their male counterparts. That's really interesting. That's right. And and what's notable is it's it's not just in conservative societies where there are rules about and 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 norms around um, who can speak with women. And so you know this drove this inspired 
the U.S. military and other militaries, for example, in Iraq and Afghanistan to deploy more women in, in combat so that they could engage with um, Iraqi and Afghan women and, and have more direct conversation. We see it there. Um, we also see it in, in, more, in broader societies. So certainly the lessons on um, peacekeeping forces. Um, I interviewed, for example, a, a Canadian um, female peacekeeping officer who had been deployed to South Sudan and recounted how her male uh, supervisor, um, the, the head of the unit, had said that when she deployed with them to villages that they had a different level of exchange with the village and understood better because of her presence. They were able to understand better from the community what their, um, what their risks uh, and, and concerns were. Um, she was also able to negotiate their, the unit's passage through checkpoints um, more effectively. And all of this is what her supervisor was, uh, the head of the unit, was recounting to her of comparing when he had women deployed with the peacekeeping unit and, and when not. So there really are advantages um, uh, to units being able to pursue their, their security interests. Uh, one more notable case is um, where we see efforts to address um, terrorism. And we see terrorists taking advantage of being able to pass women through security checkpoints if there aren't women in uniform on the other side who can do a thorough body search um, that uh, it allows, it, it leaves a, a, a gap, a security loophole that terrorists are taking advantage of and are um, uh, deploying more uh, female terrorists uh, to be able to pursue their, their means. Uh, R Rachel, am I recalling correctly that you've also written about this topic? Yes, Jamil and I have written together. So a uh, question for you, Rachel, that's related to this discussion is to what extent uh, either among political appointees or the non-political professional staff in the U.S. government, say in the State Department or defense, mm -hmm. uh, to what extent do have they gotten the message on the importance of having women uh, in peacekeeping forces? You know, I think the answer to that is mixed. I mean, I think, you know, Jamel and I certainly have spent time briefing members of Congress and officials in the executive branch uh, and others on the research and the data that Jamila just find, just shared, which makes a, you know, a relatively convincing case that including women as peacekeepers and peacekeeping forces, uh, you know, is not just the right thing to do, it's the smart thing to do. Um, I think that the representation of women still remains a challenge. And that's true, you know, within our own military, as much as it's true with respect to women's inclusion and peacekeeping forces around the world. Um, I, I think the recognition is certainly growing. Um, there's interest, for example, we've heard uh, in the current administration in thinking about this issue at the United Nations and what the U.S. government can be doing to exert leadership there. Um, but there's also a, an enormous gap, and there's much more that the U.S. government could be doing, both with respect to deploying its resources 
as well as with respect to leading by example and ensuring that women are treated appropriately and included at the table here within our own armed forces. Hey folks, this is Michael, and I just want to jump in to offer thanks to those of you who are monthly supporters of Tatter. Your individual donations mean a lot to me, and they also help offset the costs of production. For those of you who are not yet supporters but want more information about how to become one, go to patreon.com slash tatter for more information. But those of you who are students at the college where I teach, please do not do that. I can't accept your support. Everyone else, though, come on in. The water's just fine. With all that said, let's get back to the conversation. Uh, I want to put a question to you, Alexandra, now about women in economics. And I know that uh, there's a collection of essays titled A Place of Our Own, Women's Right to Land, in which uh, you describe some of the barriers to women's ownership of property, as well as some policies that can offer some remedies. Can you, such as automatic joint titling for spouses, can you talk a little bit about uh uh, the take-home points of that essay for people who haven't had a chance to read it? Yeah, absolutely. So I think just to start, the the reality today is that many women around the world are property-less. They do not have access to property. Um, we also know that women are more likely to perform unpaid work that certainly benefit the household. So think, for example, about childcare, elder care, cooking, cleaning. But they typically have fewer monetized contributions than men. And this means that they're also less likely to acquire assets. And this includes property, for example, um, during marriage. And then we also know that there are several discriminatory practices in countries around the world that continue to prevent women from acquiring land ownership in the first place. Um, The World Bank's Women, Business, and the Law team released a report last year that found that close to 40% of countries have at least one legal constraint on women's rights to property. And this means that it limits women's ability to both own, manage, and inherit land. And many countries today also still have marriage, divorce, and inheritance laws that discriminate against women and daughters. And just to give you a few examples or a few numbers on that, today, 39 countries um, allow sons to inherit a larger proportion of assets than daughters. 36 countries do not have the same inheritance rights for widows as they do for widowers. And in several countries, there's actually no legal requirement that a woman is even consulted when property owned by the parties during marriage is sold. And this matters, and it matters not just for the individual woman, but to come back to your question on the economic case, Because having the name on the land title, it provides women the proof of ownership and it allows them to have a greater say in, let's say, decisions about the household's land. And it allows women to use it as collateral too, to take loans. And we've seen that for some women, and especially in in low-income countries, that joint titling, as you mentioned, it could be their only chance to get collateral and accessing credit. And improving women's access to and control over economic resources has actually been shown to have a positive effect on, on poverty reduction and economic growth on, on an economic level or on national level. I'm sorry. So 
when I read your essay, I saw that one of the policies that you referred to briefly that could potentially um, increase women's access to property ownership was automatic joint titling for spouses. First, I want to make sure I'm understanding that. I assume the idea is that automatically uh, a husband and wife would jointly own property as opposed to it uh, being by default owned by the husband. Am I right about that or am I wrong about that? Yes, that is correct. And so, as you note, that would um, entirely eliminate opportunities to discriminate in favor of male spouses. But I, I wonder, in the titling of land, that is, but I wondered if there might be a negative side effect, given that the result would be that if a woman wanted out of a marriage, her resources, her property and his property would be entirely commingled, would that actually make it harder for her to leave a marriage because she doesn't have her own property? So the, the main, what has been written about this and what we found is that joint titling actually has a, a, a positive benefit specifically for women in particular. And it is, it goes back to what I mentioned earlier that the reality is that many women around the world today are, they don't have property. And it's more common that it's more the case that the husband already has the legal right to the household's property um, and that yeah. the wife is left with nothing in the case of a divorce. That's more common yeah. than, than the scenario that you're posing, which is that women are trapped in bad marriages because she shares the right um, to the household's property with her husband. And there have been successful examples of this too, where cases um, where some countries have introduced innovative laws to, to further promote women's land registration. Um, in Nepal, for example, they discounted fees to register property jointly by spouses or under a woman's name. And you've seen this in Serbia as well. So it's been across, um, across, across regions. So the examples that we have today, have, the benefits have accrued to women. And certainly, as, as you've pointed to, it, it's not just the property laws that are the final story. And that's where you know, these assessments look at um, how a whole range of laws affect women's opportunity. Divorce law, as you're mentioning, is, is another key area of what happens in the divorce, how legally in that country, what access do women have to property after the divorce. Um, inheritance laws, Alexandra mentioned, is, a, is another key area of um, do women and, and daughters inherit uh, equally to um, their uh, brothers and sons. Um, so the, there's joint titling is one solution and has to be part of a broader constellation of laws that ensure that women have equal access to property throughout their lifespan. Still on the topic of women in economics, but in a different context, Rachel, I see that you wrote a chapter titled, quote, Let Women Work, the Economic Case for Feminism. And at one point you noted that the Saudi economy, well, it's a quote you say, as the Saudi economy struggles to cope with low oil prices, increasing uh, female workforce participation has become part of Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman's ambitious economic modernization effort known as Saudi Vision 2030. And so this may be far-fetched, but when I was thinking about that, about the idea that falling oil prices 
may have motivated gender parity because the crown prince saw potential economic benefits from that that might not otherwise have been motivated. I wonder, could one make a case for reducing, for for those of us, say, in the U.S., to reduce our consumption of petroleum as a way to, in a very small way, contribute to reducing demand and perhaps therefore reducing prices? Could one view that as actually a feminist consumer action, albeit a small one? You know, I, I think that's a, an interesting approach. And you know, what I would say is is really two things. The first is just the observation that in the 21st century, no country can get ahead if half its population is left behind. And I think the changes that we've seen in Saudi Arabia from the rescission of the driving ban uh, that applied to women to some of the other changes that have facilitated women's participation greater participation in the workforce, what's really driving that is the recognition as Saudi Arabia moves from an oil-based economy to a more diversified economy that essentially handicapping 50% of one's population by restricting their ability to participate in the economy necessarily limits the ability to grow and prosper. And that is as true in Saudi Arabia as it is in other countries. Um, Saudi Arabia certainly has a long way to go with respect to fully eliminating the barriers that inhibit women's economic participation there. You know, while the driving ban has been lifted, there is still a guardianship system in place that uh, inhibits women's ability to, you know, sign a contract, to travel freely without a male guardian, uh, to take any number of actions that are really required in order to be a successful entrepreneur or to otherwise participate economically. Um, the second observation I would make is, you know, while the shift from an oil-based economy to a more diversified economy partly explains what's happening in Saudi Arabia, I think the larger question for how we could unleash the economic potential of women, whether we're talking about Saudi Arabia or any other country for that matter, is to ensure that we have a level playing field for women in the workplace. And here at the Council on Foreign Relations, we have put together the first ever Women's Workplace Equality Index, where we essentially look at how level the legal playing field is for women in countries around the world. We looked at 189 countries pulling from World Bank data. And what we found is that most countries still have laws on the books that make it harder for women to work than men. And this is an inequality that sort changes not only women, but entire economies. And I'll just give a few examples. And certainly many of these examples apply in Saudi Arabia, and I would argue are, are even more important than thinking about um, shifts in oil dependency to ensuring that women have the ability to prosper and participate economically there. 104 countries today in 2019 still restrict the kinds of jobs that women can hold. So there are discriminatory laws in the books that prevent 2.75 billion women worldwide from working in mining, in energy, agriculture, and other industries. And this is a disparity that exists even though we know from evidence, from studies, that where labor laws treat women and men equally, 
women work and earn more. We heard Alexandra and Jamila talking earlier about restrictions on women's property rights. There are about 75 countries around the world that restrict women's property rights. Widows have fewer inheritance rights than widowers or daughters cannot inherit in the same way as sons. And these legal inequalities translate to less property and therefore less collateral, which impedes women's entrepreneurship. There are 59 countries that provide no legal protection whatsoever against sexual harassment in the workplace. And this is, again, in the wake of a global Me Too movement where we see women raising their voices, decrying mistreatment in the workplace around the world. In 59 countries, it is perfectly legal to harass women at work. Um, And then I'll just mention one more statistic. In 18 countries, women are still required to have their husband's permission to work outside the home. So when we think about what actions the U.S. government could take or even private citizens could take to unleash the economic potential for women, I would argue that even more important than thinking about gas consumption is thinking about whether the starting line is even fair in countries around the world for women who are trying to compete economically and what we can do to call upon governments, to pressure governments, to at least ensure a level playing field. So on, so, so, so on that note then, uh, even if uh, I can't feel that I'm being a good feminist in driving my hybrid. Um, I'm I'm going to be a voter in 2020. I wonder if any of you have a sense, it's still very early in the presidential campaign season, but do any of you have a sense of which candidates are supportive of the kinds of policies that would actually level that playing field? That's a great question. I I think, you know, as someone who participated in political campaign in the 2008 presidential election, and then again in 2016, I am keenly focused on the race that we have coming up before us. And I think it is notable at the outset to observe that while we saw history made in 2008 with Secretary Clinton being the first woman to win a contested primary or caucus in our nation's history. And then in 2016, where she became the first woman to win a presidential nomination by a major political party. Um, I think it is notable that we are seeing a step forward in this cycle with six women already declared candidates uh, for president of the United States. That is, you know, a remarkable degree of change in a relatively short period of time when we consider kind of the scope of our kind of 250 odd years of of history. I think that what I'm keeping my eye on in this political cycle is the degree to which candidates on both sides of the aisle are responding to the full constellation of issues related to gender equality that have risen to the fore, in particular from the 2017 Women's March through to the Me Too movement that we saw explode around the world, to the rise in women's political activism that we've seen, again, in many nations across the globe. You know, we've seen a rising level of women's activism, and women are not 
campaigning on any one issue or for any one issue. There's a constellation of issues. Women are calling for fair treatment in the workplace. They're calling for an end to violence against women. They are calling for a seat at the table, whether that table is in a capital or whether that table is in the private sector. Um, we are seeing an explosion of interest and of women's voices uh, demanding change in a variety of different ways. That's true in the U.S. and around the world. And so what I am looking for is candidates who are responsive to that full agenda. So rather than in, in, in years past where we have seen candidates focus on a particular issue related to women, such as violence against women or women's health, to see if a candidate is able to articulate a forward-looking position on that full constellation, that full range of women's issues. And from a U.S. foreign policy perspective, you know, there's a lot of work that we still have to do uh, on both sides of the aisle to persuade those who hold positions of power that employing an approach, employing a, fem a foreign policy approach that elevates women around the world is actually a strategic goal uh, as opposed to a nice thing to do. And, and as I saw you, and I think Alexandra was a co-author on this, I think just a couple of days ago, you noted that it's also important to set a good example at home. And you wrote about how uh, child marriage is still sanctioned. Uh, via uh, an exemption process uh, in some instances in the U.S. And so if we're going to push for the elimination of child marriages ab uh, abroad, it's important to do so at home. Um, but, but it sounds as if, Rachel, there's not yet a candidate who has staked out a position that is so strongly uh, supportive of feminist, feminist poor foreign policy that you're willing to mention them by name. You know, we haven't seen anyone in the U.S. who's currently running use that language. I think mm -hmm. what we have seen historically is that attention to gender equality and women's issues has increased over the last several consecutive administrations. I think in the last administration in particular, we saw an articulation of gender equality as a priority in U.S. foreign policy uh, in a comprehensive way that we hadn't seen before. And we also saw, importantly, the elevation of the position of ambassador at large for global women's issues, which was created in 2009, um, to a position that reported directly to the Secretary of State, which really elevated the notion that gender equality is a priority from a U.S. foreign policy perspective. I think now the question is, you know, what is the degree to which the candidates who are running want to continue that progress? And what policies will they articulate under their foreign policy platform uh, that will continue to build upon that progress? And I don't think we have heard, it's early, I don't think we've heard a tremendous amount about that yet, uh, but I hope that we will. Um, one thing I'd I'd add as well as if we look at um, the record in Congress uh, that we do see both Republicans and Democrats uh, through their roles um, on 
the foreign affairs committees and on the armed services committees um, pursuing commitments to uh, women's rights and opportunities. So former Congressman Ed Royce, for example, a Republican from California, when he was chair of the House Foreign Affairs Committee, championed bipartisan bills on a range of issues related to women's rights and opportunities from the Women, Peace and Security Act to the Women's Entrepreneurship and Economic Empowerment Act, both of which um, became law with strong bipartisan support and were signed by by President Trump um, uh, into law. On the Senate side, we've seen, um, for example, the Women's Entrepreneurship and Economic Empowerment Act there was introduced uh, by a collection of bipartisan leaders from Senator Rubio, Republican from Florida, Senator John Boozman, Republican from Arizona, and Ben Cardin, um, Democrat from Maryland, and Jean Shaheen, a Democrat from New Hampshire. So we see leadership in Congress. Those are just two examples of laws that that they've passed in in the last uh, year or so. Um, but we've also seen um, legislation introduced looking at uh, girls' education, uh, protection from violence against women, looking at that whole constellation of issues as Rachel laid out. Uh, so there are examples that uh, candidates can can point to and look to to see how there have been uh, congressional leaders on both sides of the aisle that have pursued uh, commitments and encourage the U.S. government to do more to support women's rights and opportunities around the world. Perhaps one final question, and it it goes to the general approach which I'm hearing, which is often to justify to justify feminist foreign policy objectives on pragmatic grounds that they say for example advance security or they advance the economic well-being of states i wonder if there's a risk in that approach and that risk is that specific issues where it might be more difficult to frame them in pragmatic terms say for example uh female genital cutting do those issues fall off the agenda because it's difficult to justify them on those pragmatic grounds? Mm. You know, that's a, a great question. And I think there are two responses to that. The first is when you take an issue like female genital mutilation, there actually are pragmatic grounds on which to argue against that practice, including the health ramifications and the effect that those health complications have on everything from, you know, future childbearing to women's ability to participate in the economy. Um, But I think there's a second point, which is important, which is to observe that rights for women and girls, that that's an important issue from a human rights perspective. You know, in 1995, at the Fourth World Conference on Women in Beijing, where famously then First Lady Hillary Clinton went to declare women's rights as human rights, you know, 189 nations came together for the first time to recognize that principle in a platform for action. That 
women's rights are fundamental human rights. And so I would submit that even if you are in a situation where mistreatment of women and girls is not something that you can argue against from a, a strategic perspective from the vantage point of its effect on security or prosperity, there's still a human rights imperative at stake. And part of what separates U.S. foreign policy from many other countries is our focus on human rights. And that's fundamental to the values that we hold as a country. So I think the case that we articulate is that elevating the status of women and girls is both a moral and a strategic imperative, um, but that it's important to make that case in a comprehensive way, um, not to make the case out with, from the moral perspective at the expense of the strategic or vice versa. That's it for Tatter. I want to thank Jamila Biggio, Alexandra Bro, and Rachel Vogelstein for taking the time to chat with me. For more information about each of them, as well as links to some of the articles that were mentioned in the episode, go to tatter.fireside.fm and find the page for this episode. To offer feedback on this or any other episode of Tatter, if you are a Twitter user, then you can mention, using the at sign, tatter underscore rags. Whether or not you use Twitter, you can also post a review to iTunes. Either way, I appreciate the feedback. It helps me do this podcast better. In any case, thanks for listening, and be well.